Welcome back, Growth Solvers. What is up? How are you guys doing? This is so good. I'm so excited that you're here. Welcome, welcome to all of you guys who are listening in 60 plus countries uh, worldwide. I'm so excited that you're here because today we have some really, really special uh, guests. And what's super cool is that here at the Good Grow Great podcast, great length segment where I basically take you into the minds and the brain and the lives and work of others and people who have gone through certain journeys. And we are going to unpack today how David Farrell, and David's called the wood guy, but David Farrell went from essentially disassembling old barns into building furniture for people like Stella McCartney. And so when he started ngraindesignlumber.com 15 years ago, he knew that he wanted to take a different approach than most people. Now today, David is standing with us and talking about, number one, unexpected ways that you can create once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, like what he did with Stella McCartney. And number two, what it really took to create things that last, things that really just rise beyond the, the noise around you, right? You see things go up and down all the time. There are people coming in and out of style, but how do you create something, even if you're, you're in a different business? and space and industry, how can your work surpass, right? Surpass everyone else's and how can it even surpass you in a meaningful way so that you can just kind of sit back and relax and just watch the fruit of your labor, just work and produce and reproduce. And also how you can learn anything, right? How you can learn anything on your own and handsomely earn from it. So we're going to talk talk about all of these things and growth solvers. Don't forget before we dive in to hit that follow and subscribe button. Let's get growing. David, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Very good. All right. I'm excited to chat with you because I don't have too many, uh, I don't know too many people who grew up in the farming community as a farmer. So if you can, I'd like to actually start with that just for a second here and how you grew up in New York as with your dad and your family and and growing up in a farm. So talk to us a little bit about what are some of the top experience or maybe stories that still to this day kind of stick with you from that phase of life that of yours. Okay. Well, I grew up, as she said, on a dairy farm and we call it upstate, but it's more like mid-state New York, which is on the Massachusetts line. Um, and of course, we were growing up in the 60s. Um, we actually lost our dad very young. So we were the little four kids that grew up on the farm. And um, right from the start, we had a lot of responsibility as kids. You know, we had to do our chores before and after school. Um, I think that's where I was. We learned how to fix everything because we were, you know, as we put it, too poor to hire somebody to come fix stuff. So we pretty much always figured how to do everything. If I can kind of sub in for the audience here just for a second and pause to for everybody to understand the the really when you mentioned chores before and after school, I think most people nowadays probably think about 
yeah, putting your dishes on the sink, right? <laughs> and then yeah. tucking your bed and, and fixing your bed before you get up and brush your teeth. So uh, just kind of describe for a second here what those chores entail. I, I don't think people have the full appreciation just yet of what it means to grow up in, in a farm. Well, for dairy farmers, that meant getting up every morning before school at about 430 because we had about 80 cows to milk, feed, make sure they were all healthy before we went to school. And that was every day. Often people ask, you had to milk them every day? Yes, that was every day. Um, rain or shine, holidays and weekends. And then when we came home, it was the same way. Um, we always had a lot of chores to do. But our farm was also the hangout, which was kind of cool. Um, the whole neighborhood kids often showed up at our place. So there'd be at times my mom, you know, would have like 15 kids running around the farm. But, um, but yeah, I think that was our, you know, we didn't look at it as we were poor. We always had all the little things the other kids didn't have. Yeah, growing up that way, it was pretty cool. I love that you you mentioned a few things that immediately jumped out. You mentioned 80 cows to milk, and I'm assuming you rotate maybe with your siblings and some of your family members here and there. But still, for a little child, you know, grade school kid, going out there every single morning at 4.30, rain or shine, 20 degrees or 80 degrees, right? It's Sometimes not... Sometimes it was below zero. I, I can believe that. Yeah, I can definitely believe this. And that is so, I think this is so admirable. And I don't think now that I feel like America and a lot of part of the world is is moving into kind of a more, uh, you know, suburban and definitely urban communities, I think there's, uh, we kind of forget that there is, there are all of these things that values and virtues that are created through just physical hard work, right? And you mentioned yeah. 80 cows and you mentioned kids and neighbors and friends in your community who who also chime in and you, you hang out with them, you grew up with them as well, learn from each other. And also you mentioned that you didn't really look at it as as if you were poor. And this seems to be a, what I love is that this seems to be actually a kind of a, a shared quality that I found with people that I speak, have spoken who have experienced poverty in the past. It's almost like they have this kind of sense of peace with what they have, and they're working really just to live another day, one day at a time, and just a little bit better than the day before. So is, this, is, is that kind of the general uh, yeah. understanding from growing up there, there, David? Yeah, we learn to have the little things. You know, appreciate all the little things. Like I said... Um, yeah, I look at today, you know, I look at, you know, I was a little kid, you know, I was 10 years old running big farm equipment and, you know, my own children, I was like, I wouldn't let them near that big equipment when we were farming, <laughs> but it's like, how did I ever reach the pedals or how did I, you know, but yeah, and it's fun when we get together to retell all the old stories and for the people on the outside, they go, you guys really did that? I'm like, yeah, we really did. Um, so yeah, um. You know, as opposed to other people say, it must have been tough. We kind of, I don't know. Yeah, it was tough. We went without, but um, but yeah, I wouldn't have traded it. I love this. I love that you mentioned that you wouldn't trade it for anything else. And I think it's because you understand, and I can tell that you understand the value of hard work, right? And yeah. um, just that repetitive, you know, habitual, and it eventually becomes, you grow 
it's everything is a muscle. We always talk about this on the podcast as well, that your mental toughness is a muscle, your positive attitude is a muscle that people aren't bored with, that they have to develop. And, and that can be developed in any situation, big or small, including in a farm, which I absolutely love. And, and so before we dive into how you then years, years later get involved in the world of construction, interior design, lumber, all of these things. And we're going to touch on how you came to basically how your products ended up in the hands of Stella McCartney, of all people. But before we talk about that, I want to talk for a minute about how you grew that you mentioned your love for disassembling old barn. And was that something out of curiosity? How did that come about, David? Yeah, actually it was. I wanted to be a woodworker and kind of toyed with it when I was farming. Actually, the reason we got out of farming, the, the, there was the, the economy of it. You know, um, they just got to the point where we couldn't support the farm. I actually had to, that's why I went into construction. And then I was decided to sell the cows then and then went into construction full time. And tearing the barns down it was because I wanted to lumber. And I always thought it was sad that, you know, to go tear, you know, because these were farms that I knew. But what, if we didn't tear them down, often they just got burned or, you know, hauled away. So I thought, man, what a waste. And started, um, I wanted to learn how to make furniture. So I'm somewhat self-taught. But then uh, just started taking classes with some very famous um, woodworkers that made their living making furniture. And for a while, that's what I did. I made the furniture. Um, same time, I was a union carpenter. Um, and then the work hit the wall. And then we decided that um, to start milling this stuff. And from that, we kind of fell into doing this end grain material um, and made a, several connections um, with that. And that pretty much just kind of took off. I love this. I love that you had mentioned that it actually was coming from the idea of, okay, I don't want to see good things come to waste. And you started to kind of essentially figure out how to DIY, recreate things, right? Uh, repurpose things, which is absolutely, I think it's definitely, and I want to emphasize that it's, it's an art, right? Not everybody can make good furniture. And the reason why I wanted to invite you to the podcast as well, because a lot of people who are listening, they're either thinking of starting something on the side for their income, or they already are starting on the side, or they're already running a business with teams, uh, you know, under their wings. And I think some of the some of the principles that are involved in creating a good piece of furniture is also applicable to multi facets, uh, many other facets of business, right? So what makes, and if you can divulge us for a minute here and let us into this beautiful world of craftsmanship and furniture making, what what are some of the things that you, aside from, yes, it has to stand, it has to be sturdy, what are some of the things that you look for when you create or recreate a piece of furniture? What are some top things that you look for? Well, long ago, one of my teachers, uh, Blaine Berry, did mostly things by eye. And often, you know, people say, oh, you have to have a plan. And no, I can like take a picture of something. People send us a picture and I'll make the furniture from there. But I always remember Blaine said, if it doesn't look right, it's not right. 
And I've kind of noticed sometimes when you got, you look at other people's shop, it's like, well, you know, they didn't get it to go right. Um, you know, if it doesn't look like it, how would I say, should have gone together, it didn't. Um, same when we do work in the buildings, we try to make the floor um, stand out as opposed to just putting it all down as a floor. So it takes the extra time. Um, yeah, um, I'm not sure where that came from other than I've always, you know, usually I build it for myself. I was how I would look at it. So I love that your Blaine had mentioned, actually, I want to highlight this for a second. And in case anyone missed it, is that you have to have an eye. And if it doesn't look right, it's not right. And a lot of people will be thinking, well, okay, that's already that's if you're already experienced, right. But I think what many people underestimate is that we all are born in some at some levels, right in some levels with a certain I think understanding and intuition about some of the things that we appreciate, right? Um, right? Just the same as if you're kind of walking up and down the street and you saw a business and, you know, the sign is slightly off or whatever, right? There's something in our yeah. mind that kind of goes, wait a minute, it's, <laughs> it's what's yeah. going on here, right? Yeah. So I love that how simple it is yet so profound that, it has to be like, you know, forget about all of the fancy schmancy. And I'm big on taking small things and creating big leaps out of small things. And I think what I want to highlight here is, is your emphasis on, you know, yes, make sure that it is, it is what it is and make sure that it is basically serving what it's serving, what's supposed to serve, um, yeah. which is important. And um, so how did you then, you, when you start to create uh, furniture, flooring, lumber, all of these things. You mentioned salvaging old trees and dead trees. And personally, I, I'm a huge fan of just beautiful pieces of lumber that's being salvaged and the grain is going certain ways yeah. and people recreate it uh, into end tables and, uh, you know, countertops. I think it is marvelous. So, when you started doing that, is that something that, uh, how was that, was there a hurdle kind of starting to share some of that work with the world, selling it? Was there any kind of resistance at all from? Well, it's a different world. business altogether. The end grain, the, like our um, reclaimed material from the barns is one thing. The slabs, what people, we actually have a video will be on YouTube is how we make them. Um, often, just about all the time, it's from the tree services. Um, the tree had to come down. But uh, with the slabs, it's a lot of labor, and you need some big equipment. Um, that's the one thing most people don't realize. You know, some of these logs we have, are, you know, they're four ton. So that's a tremendous amount of weight. Um, so, yeah, it's not for the faint-hearted. Um, and the slabs are heavy, but... We like, because we get a load sometimes out of Philadelphia. There was stuff that was going to either be landfill or firewood. And some of the wood we get out of it's just beautiful. Right. And I think there's this idea of one of a kind piece, right? And yep. in, in the world of kind of mass production, which has its own virtue, right? You can do it fast. You can, uh, you can distribute it to many, many people. But when you're talking about these four-ton 
equipment, uh, equip, big equipment for ton trees and lumber that by itself had recreated its own signature grain for years and years and years. And I think people forget that there's, this is like not just 20, 10 years. Some of these are like yeah, hundreds. Oh my goodness. Hundreds and hundreds of years. So I see, I absolutely see why there is this kind of need from coming from you to salvage it because these are pieces of art just living just living and dying and and it's up to us what we want to do with it and um and i absolutely love that you're doing that so now we've kind of touched a little bit on you've we already touched on the production side of it a little bit and um, now let's kind of move if you can to the distribution side of it and how as i mentioned earlier in the interview how some of your work ended up in Stella McCartney's hands. And so for the audience who don't know who Stella McCartney is, obviously he is, uh, she is the great Paul McCartney's daughter. She is a designer based out of UK and a very well-known and well-respected designer as well. And so share with the audience how that opportunity came about there, David. I'm not exactly sure because um, it would be someone like a designer that was doing the work for Stella. And often sometimes there's like three people between us. But what was really cool with Stella McCartney, she put these stores all over the world. On the last two that we did for her, I went to China. Um, So I thought that was pretty cool to know that, you know, our blocks, and it was the reclaimed block that she picked um, that was from Barnes right here in Lancaster. But, you know, it was kind of cool that, you know, there's some that are in Japan, Germany, Spain, um, pretty much every continent, even in Russia. We kind of thought it was pretty cool. I don't know if those people realized, you know, that's out of a barn that was here in Pennsylvania. Um, so the love of the old wood um, helped when we did the compass. We had the whole entourage here. I gave them all pieces of wood that we had just cut. I said, and it was hand-hewn. I said, step back, you know, 100 to 200 years ago. The lat was probably the last time somebody had this piece of wood in their hand. You know, what were they talking about? And you could just see it kind of clicked. That was like, wow, it is. It's part of our history. Um, and I like that we're reusing it, that it doesn't go to waste. And we do the end grain, the end grain will last, you know, two more generations. Right. This is, I, I absolutely love it when you touch on some of these pieces of wood that were hundreds of years old and just kind of, if you guys missed it, just David just touched on what were they talking about back then, hundreds of years ago, when this piece of wood was a newborn, right, basically? Yeah. And just imagine, I mean, the woods that we live in today and even some of the cities that we live in today, like it's gone through cycles and cycles of history and people coming in and out, our forefathers. And what I love is that circling back to how precious and how much work actually is involved in creating some of these amazing slabs. Uh, custom, right? You mentioned hand-hewn. Yes. I mean, my goodness, those are some hard work. And I think a lot of people right now who owns businesses, right, or want to have passive income, side income, tend to, we all tend to get so impatient, right? We're like, well, we want it fast. So we want to do all of these things automated. But think about and I just, I'm speaking to the audience here, David, just for a second. Um, but just think about how, you know, your team, you and your team has created a series of 
unique, right? Almost like fingerprint unique pieces that ended up, because it's so unique and so beautifully done, so detailed, ended up in Stella McCartney's hands, right? So I think the idea, it's so cool. And I think the idea of, you know, what we look at as waste, I think we need to kind of re- program and understand that yes of course you can impact volumes and volumes of people fast with mass production great those are all great but if your love and your passion is in these highly custom and and uh, highly unique product services whatever it is you can do that too and look at look at it i mean you can kind of impact uh, people indirectly including stella mccartney whose reach is then to millions of people right yeah. that's the beautiful part so i'd like to actually circle back for just a second here david on uh, on what you look at when you're creating these beautiful materials because I am a big believer in creating business that uh, basically is is not is more than just making money right it's it's the reason why we come home every single day is so that we can sit down and just tell ourselves that we love what we're doing and usually that comes from a love for something or someone beautiful or whatever it is and so you you talked about Blaine Berry's uh, philosophy that if something looks doesn't look right doesn't look right it's not right so uh, was there a moment when you were an apprentice, when you're still studying, when you, when you learned that the hard way? Well, actually, what, I, what made me, because I know some of your listeners that may be doing one other thing, doing this as another, was I listened to this fellow and I was taking a class with that said, if you're, if you're dreading going to work tomorrow, you need to find another job. And that's kind of where I was doing this union work in Philly with a lot of stress. So it's like, well, so you kind of make the jump as to, you know, you start on your own business. But the way, like for the trees, it's that, I'm not sure where it comes from, but it's almost like you have to cut the tree a certain way. Um, So when we get it, we roll it to make sure. So when we cut it, it's, how would I say? It's kind of like, you know, a carver would say, just carve away everything that, doesn't look like a lion it's kind of the same way when we cut the log it's like you need to cut it and you know you change the thicknesses or you lay it a certain way catch the live edge part of it um so that's always been fun and i i love that you pointed out the live edge part of it and it's probably more tactile or easier to understand when you're working with physical materials like you do. But for business owners, I think who have service products, right. And they might be a consultant or they serve people one way or another and don't have a product material. I think the application here is really that if you are really in the service of, in your case, certainly the beauty and the craftsmanship of the actual product, but in other people's case, it could be in the service of other people. Usually the next steps will organically reveal themselves, right? And yes. and it's almost like you and your hand when you're carving it, right? You just kind of follow the grain and follow the steps. That's being provided to you almost in some ways. And I'd like to encourage listeners to do the same when they are thinking about, oh my gosh, where should I start? What do I do with my business, next steps, and so forth. And just kind of 
take some pointers here that David has beautifully laid out for us. Now, David, believe it or not, uh, we are actually at the conclusion of our conversation. It goes by so fast. And I'd like to uh, share with the audience where they can connect with you. So if you can please uh, tell the audience where they can find you, and then we'll wrap up the interview. Okay, yeah, they can reach me at ngraindesignlumber.com. That would be our website. Perfect. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, hey, thank you. Hit that follow and subscribe button. Let's get it.